Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Generosity Freak Show. I'm your host, Brady Josephson, and on today's show, we get to chat with Harvey McKinnon. Harvey McKinnon is the author of many books, one of which is called Hidden Gold, which was the first book written on monthly giving. And that is one of the many areas of Harvey's expertise and probably what he is most known for. Uh, at the end of the episode, I asked where people can learn more about him and his books, and he just says, Google me. That's what kind of guy this he is. Uh, it makes him sound arrogant. He's really not. He's, he's incredibly generous. He's a wonderful person, and um, he's been doing a lot of great work in the space. So we talked to him about some of his uh, books and his journey kind of from 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and now into the current decade in monthly giving and what he's seen uh, has changed, uh, why these programs are so valuable, and maybe why organizations aren't focusing on them, and some differences between Canada, the U.S., and Europe, and around the world. So uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Uh, selfishly, I loved it um, because I love <laughs> monthly giving, and uh, I love who Harvey is and what his career has been about. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation, and thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go I said welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go Hi, Harvey. Thank you for coming on the show. You're welcome, Brady. So we're going to dive in and talk a lot about monthly and recurring giving. But uh, in doing some research on you and your vast career, uh, I saw that uh, you know like 17,659 jokes. That's a pretty specific number, first of all. But I'm hoping uh, maybe you could open up and just tell us one of those. Well, it makes it easy because 17,000 you can't tell on air anywhere. But... um, (laughs) So I figured a fundraising joke. So a director of development one day is walking along the beach, trips over this thing. Turns out it's a magic lamp. As one does, rubbed it, a genie popped out and offered uh, this director of development one wish. And uh, the director of development, being really committed to her organization, said, I wish for $1 million to support my charity. Done, said the genie. Come to your office tomorrow, and it'll be there. So the next day, she comes to the office, and when she opened her door, there was a genie and three million binder clips. She says, what the hell, said the genie. I asked for $1 million. Yes, said the genie. But did you say it couldn't be in kind? <laughs> uh, that's uh, so it's not that's a, a great good... joke, but it's a clean joke. <laughs> it's, a, it's a clean joke, and it's definitely a fundraising-specific joke. I think that one's pretty yep. niche. Uh, pretty niche. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, I, I want to take advantage of your time and take advantage of your expertise, in particular on monthly giving, something that uh, I've learned a lot from you and I'm very passionate about. But where in your career did you kind of see the light for monthly and recurring giving and kind of become this monthly giving guru or the guy or grandfather of monthly giving or whatever your preferred title is nowadays? <laughs> I think I prefer to guru to grandfather because my children are too young to read. Um, well, it was actually in the 70s, uh, pre your birth. And so I guess I'm dating myself a little. Um, I was working as a volunteer at Oxfam Canada. I was a university activist and saw what they were doing. And they were doing anti-apartheid work. And I started an anti-apartheid group on campus and got to meet them. And they actually had a very tiny monthly giving program. But I thought, this is fantastic. Um, then I went 
doing monthly giving volunteer work for them to recruit people. But over time, um, as a volunteer, I ended up getting a job there as a fundraiser uh, on a contract. And uh, it happened just around the time of the Nicaraguan Revolution. And um, I basically started a medical aid to Nicaragua campaign and raised a million and a half dollars really quickly. And what we did instantly, even though we were doing this before in direct mail, is we asked people to uh, make a monthly commitment to sustain the work in Nicaragua because it was devastated after the war. And I just saw, and you know, I'm a numbers guy. I still read books on numbers and statistics because I think data and numbers are incredibly important to success mm. in fundraising. And I can just see that if you get somebody giving you $25 a month, $300 a year, and the drop-off rate was incredibly tiny, that this is a stream of income going long into the future. And so we at Oxfam did lots of testing and pushing monthly giving. I started doing workshops on it uh, in 1981 because I wanted to pass on these ideas on this and other things to other people. And then I was basically the first person ever to speak at the AFP and its predecessor at the NSFRE on monthly giving and probably spoken 20-odd times on monthly giving at the International Conference and, and lots of other places. So during that time, um, I've been spreading uh, the word about this, but also accumulating all sorts of stories about what successes people have, have had. And most importantly, looking at the numbers, how this is just a great stream of income. Whatever channel you're using, it's better than single gift uh, donations for longevity. And as we all know, the charitable organizations these days are having a real problem with retention. This is the best solution to uh, like high drop-off rate among your donors. Yeah, yeah. So there's a few different you know paths we can take, but I kind of want to maybe keep the chronological order. And so in, in 2003 is when you published Hidden Gold, which I think is the first – was it the first book ever written on monthly giving? It was the first book on monthly giving. It actually came – there's some weird thing on Amazon where it says 2003. So maybe somebody else stole it and printed it in 2003. <laughs> but the original edition came out in 1999. I basically wrote it in 97, 98, came out in 99. Um, unfortunately for me, the bonus books, the publisher, got out of the fundraising business about four months later. And they <laughs> still owe me tons of royalties. Uh, so um, – but the book still sold remarkably well uh, for a fundraising book. And there wasn't another book on monthly giving until about uh, 1996 when I wrote another book for a British series that Ken Burnett has a white line press on monthly committed giving. So those those were the first two. And, and uh, the decision to actually publish a book, was it just kind of the culmination of, you know, you're speaking and you're kind of advocating for this and you've collected these stories and success and just like, man, I got to get this word out to more people somehow. Pretty much. I always had this, um, you know, I've learned so much from other speakers, from reading books, and lately from things like podcasts. Um, and I just have this passion to spread ideas that I think are helpful to people and help improve the world. And I know that uh, charitable organizations that get good fundraising advice can do so much more. And this is one thing that I think is critically important for everybody. Uh, what's what's one or two of the most significant changes that you've seen in in the monthly giving realm in particular since you've kind of published that book or in the last you know couple decades? Right. Well, I guess the first thing probably happened in um, maybe about fifteen years ago when organizations basically they started matching 
two kinds of fundraising, personal asks and monthly giving, and they started face-to-face campaigning. Hmm. So that was kind of revolutionary in some ways because um, I think it was started in Austria, but it spread like wildfire. And the organizations that were early in on this, the big organizations like Greenpeace, uh, Oxfam, did phenomenally well because it was people never been asked before. Today, there's a lot of problems with face-to-face because people feel annoyed by it. Mm-hmm. And B, once you've been asked a couple hundred times by different people uh, and you haven't done it, it's kind of annoying. <laughs> so, um, But at the, that's recruited tens of millions of people mm-hmm. uh, who are still giving two different causes. I guess Direct Response TV had the same kind of impact. Mm. The first organizations doing it, which would more or less be the world visions of the world, uh, have millions of monthly donors that came out of that. But again, TV also has kind of declined in response rate. It's pretty much every channel. Uh, it's more expensive to acquire a donor and the attrition rate seems to be increasing. So, but those are the two big volume drivers for monthly giving. Everybody's always been, already been doing all the other channels, you know, continue to see you know, success, but it's, it's a volume game uh, with those two things because you can just scale them up. The third thing, obviously, is all the digital internet uh, channels that people can use to acquire new monthly donors, and uh, or any donors for that matter. And so that's been, uh, has had moderate to great success, depending on who's doing it and how they're doing it and what kind of resources they have um, to channel into there. I'll give you one example of an organization that's done phenomenally well using paid social media and other digital media is the American Civil Liberties Union. And they've Donald Trump, they should send him a gift basket because <laughs> they went from 45,000 to 265,000 monthly donors wow. in a four month period because of his, his attack on civil rights. So uh, when people are highly emotional, that's yeah. the best time to ask them to give. And they were highly emotional around the things he was doing. And I haven't talked to them. I, I interviewed him for this webinar series I did on activism and fundraising about four months ago. And that was the numbers they had at the time. I'm sure it's even higher uh, today. Yeah, and we actually, um, I used them as, a, they were in a study that we did with Salesforce on kind of the giving experience, the digital giving experience for recurring. And I called them out or, and used them as a good example because they were one of the few, actually, they were one of nine <laughs> that we documented that actually had something like a value proposition around monthly giving during your donation flow. Most, it's, it, it's really passive at best of just kind of you have to go out of your way to check a box with no context. <laughs> uh, there was only nine out of 150 or 115 organizations that tried to kind of persuade or even nudge you towards making a monthly gift, um, which was crazy. Oh, but- the tragedy of that research is I did a study, I think, similar to the one you did recently back in uh, the 90s. I did a couple of them where I contacted 100 Canadian organizations, 100 U.S. organizations, with saying, I am interested in making a monthly gift, and, and tracked and presented at conferences on what happened. And only half the people even responded saying wow. um, uh, anything. One of them, you know, three or four of them were just a brochure in an envelope, no message, nothing. <laughs> uh, some of the other ones were responsive. It didn't mention monthly giving. So that was less than half. And a number of the organizations who I approached, um, as I'm interested in your monthly giving program, um, but even if they had a monthly giving program, they didn't send me anything. Hmm. There were only three out of 100 that were really well done. Wow. Uh, so 
probably send them small donations to thank <laughs> them for being. But uh, but I've done the same thing a couple of times, and we still do these um, mystery shopper guys where we send donations to a lot of charities. And generally speaking, tragically, for most organizations, uh, the back end service is not good, and that costs them way more money than they ever know. Yeah, yeah, and that came out in our study too. Like when we we reported a card is canceled, another one is lost. And if, if a card wasn't auto-recovered and the lost, then uh, three-quarters of organizations didn't contact us at all. You know, yeah. and this is like we're gone, not because we we don't like the organization. We're just purely kind of process system administrative reasons, which is, you know, quite quite tragic indeed. Um, yes. I'd well, be curious. And, and given, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I was just going to say, given the long-term value of a monthly donor, which every organization should know yeah. uh, or have a decent sense of projecting and could be too – like frequently it's $2,000 – if it's through some channels or more or less, depending on your running operation. But every card you recover is probably worth a minimum of $500, maybe way more, not to mention the legacy potential or extra gift potential. So if organizations make a decision to invest in this kind of back-end stewardship, it will cover itself within months. Yeah. Well, and, and maybe that's a tie into a, a. It's actually a quote of yours that I use in the study and kind of frequently when I talk on recurring giving. But and just kind of like, why don't more organizations focus on this? And the quote that you had was the single largest obstacle to a successful monthly giving program is buy-in. And I, I would love to know from you and your experience why is there a lack of buy-in? I mean, the the math is so clear and so simple, and right. hopefully it's known at this point. But there still seems to be a lack of buying. So why why are organizations and fundraisers and, and teams not bought in? Well, there's a multitude of reasons, really. People say things like, it's only a small amount of money, so I'm not interested. Well, one, I was in the States um, two years ago now visiting an organization that, um, and the director of development said, we used your book, started the program 10 years ago. And now we're making $135 million a year in a decade and growing fast. So they had a lot of multi-million dollar donors. But this is going to be a cash cow giving them for at the rate they were growing could easily be $150 million now. So when people have the attitude it's a small amount of money, they don't actually realize the potential because there's a lot of people in the fundraising world who don't understand numbers or projections <laughs> or don't care. Uh, so that, that is kind of one thing. And there's also a threat to um, individuals or businesses or jobs, mm. whatever. So I, w- I was uh, in the 90s, late 90s, yes, late 90s. I was working uh, with the, the second largest PBS station in the U.S. to build their monthly giving program. And I had spoken at the, was the first person to speak on monthly giving at the PBS station conference, I think in 94. And their take up was really slow. And I think it was for the same reason with this a particular case is that it threatened people's jobs. So here's the mm. example. The person running the uh, program, and they were kind of slightly silent, but she was responsible for 250 to $999 donors. Perfect people to convert to monthly giving. So if somebody's giving you $250, well, you ask them for $20 or $21 a month. And if they give you 21, you're making an extra $2 a year. <laughs> but some of them will sign up for 25, round it up. Some of them will go for 30. If you've got that premium, they might even go for 30 or 35. So you're significantly upgrading them instantly. But even if you get them to give exactly the same amount or even $20 a month, $10 less than 250 what happens is 
that their longevity of giving is going to make you way more money. And then once or twice a year, you've got the opportunity to upgrade them as well. Or since they're giving all the time, you could have that special thing to ask for this gift for some emergency, which people often give, increasing their value again. But for her, roundabout way to say, but for her, she was evaluating how much money came from her 10,000 donors. Mm -hmm. And so if she converted people to monthly giving, they go out of her program into somebody else's program. <laughs> so she didn't want me to contact these people. And we had like a big fight about it. And, <laughs> and so I found things like this at different organizations. Interesting. And that's not her uh, uh, responsibility in some ways. I mean, I believe that people should be dedicated to what's best for the organization right. as opposed to the self-interest. But really, that's a management, a leadership issue that they have to say, we want people out of this program into a program that gives us more money so we can uh, you know, more likely accomplish the mission that we have and that we're responsible for. So that's one kind of side, and I've seen that in other organizations. Mm, interesting. And then there's the consultant side. So I've never actually seen this in Canada, but in the States, I was working with a big cancer cause, and their direct mail agency did not want me to contact any of their direct mail donors, perfect people to become <laughs> monthly donors, because that would take money out of the direct mail program. Right. And in the States, they got paid by package sent as opposed to most ethical consultants where they're in fact just getting paid flat fees for the work that they're doing. So there's no actual incentive to mail to people that right. they shouldn't be mailing to. So they fought this for a year and a half when I was working with the organization. And so I think there's, you have to kind of look at in an organization, what are the kind of self-interest that you have mm. to say, okay, the, for the staff person, that's a legitimate concern. If she was evaluating your goal is to get 5 to 10% of your people into this monthly giving program, and right. then we'll give you a bonus. She'd Changes. be dead keen on this. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. in fact, that, that um, PBS station now is making a fortune in uh, monthly giving, but mm. they could have been acquiring people way cheaper way 20 yeah, years yeah. ago right. and have a way bigger file now if they had you know, embraced it. So there's lots of other barriers. People say, we don't know how to do it. Uh, we don't have the staff. But again, it's actually a good way. You get a thousand people giving you twenty dollars a month. You have almost a quarter of a million dollars a year. You can pay for one or two staff pretty quickly if you push this program. Hey everybody, Brady here. We'll get back to the episode in a second. But first, did you know that recurring or monthly donors are worth up to five point four times more than those who only make one time donations? That's one of the key insights and reasons behind a big study that we did in partnership with Salesforce.org, which you can download for free at recurringgiving.com. We gave three different donations to 115 nonprofits and tracked and captured the entire process and all the communications for three months, analyzed it all, and tried to summarize it in this big old report full of insights, ideas, and experiments that you can run to optimize your program. That's all at recurringgiving.com. And while you're there, you can actually benchmark your organization and your program compared to the 115 nonprofits that we had in our study. Again, all of this is at recurringgiving.com, and it is for free. So if you're interested, please check it out. That is recurringgiving.com. Back to the show. I find it fascinating because like a lot of those answers, I just feel like uh, aren't very you know, factual, like um, – small amounts of money, but, you know, monthly donors give more in a year, much more in a year, twice as much generally than a one-time donor and often more in, in like six months. So unless you need money, like in the next two months, you know, a monthly donor is right. still better for you in the shorter term, you know, and, yeah. and I just, some of that stuff just doesn't make sense. And so the, the more that we get into it, you know, we start seeing those internal kind of machinations, which is kind of, 
crazy. And so what are maybe some of the solutions or tips? Like you had one there of just kind of, um, you know, incentivizing the right action uh, instead of maybe something that's inadvertently depressing, <laughs> uh, the focus on monthly giving. Like that's kind of a tip. But are there some other things that you've seen that can help kind of foster a sense of buy-in uh, for, for programs? Well, when I get a chance to speak to boards of directors, uh, which is not all that often, but occasionally, but I, I always offer to do this, and I like doing that. They can explain the numbers. There's often people on the board who have all these filters, and they don't actually get to see somebody uh, who has numbers. So we know when I used to work at Oxfam, you know, after a point, people internally stop listening to you. So then we hire the outside <laughs> consultant who says exactly the same thing as I right. said. Say, well, Colin Squires said it. We should probably do this. I am Colin Squires now. So I know there's lots of smart people in charities. I go in and say these things that they know, but the board of the executive director listens to me, right. and then they actually implement good programs. So I figure that's 25% of my job. Hmm. Uh, and it's not that I'm asking them always what they think and then repeating. It's just like people who have been doing this for a long time pretty much know what works. So if you can get a chance to explain with numbers to leadership people, that does help. Hmm. Uh, or at least I've seen it help and, and people invest in this. Another uh, group that can be a partner. So we've got um, a new organization in the environmental field. And somebody they're talking to about doing um, a capital campaign or major gift work for them. We also have a, a university client, same thing. The, the consultants they're using know that they need a pipeline for major donors mm-hmm. and direct mail and digital and other channels are pipelines, and those are pipelines that produce monthly donors who are pretty, some of them are potentially good um, major gifts eventually, and mm. certainly legacies, which are major gifts, uh, one of the best groups of any filed, uh, whether they're self-selecting or they become more loyal because of their long-term relationship, it doesn't matter, but they are great for legacies. Mm. So I found that uh, a number of these skeletons are great partners saying we have to build these programs, the individual gifts and the monthly gifts. Mm. So that, that is another thing that I've uh, seen pretty work. And I've got um, the one thing that I use often in seminars is a little case study. So I'll, uh, I'll go to new clients or clients that aren't investing enough money for seminars and tell them about the Vancouver Marmot Recovery Foundation and how many monthly donors I have. So they had about it's a, a small organization on Vancouver Island saving this endangered marmot. Uh, was at one point the most endangered uh, mammal in the world. Hmm. Um, but it's a rodent. And I go in and say, they have more monthly donors than your organization <laughs> does. That's, you know, trying to solve cancer or, you know, um, you know, solve Parkinson's or, you know, save the environment or whatever. And it's true. And it's because they put money into it. Mm-hmm. And our analysis on their file, so you're mentioning it's two to one. Um, more money in monthly giving on average. But except for the really large monthly donors, is actually more than that. And, and the reason being because uh, they will give, 90% of them will give their 12 gifts a year, and that adds up. So their actual money is about double or triple on most of the files we look at. But because 90% of them are giving as opposed to 45% giving, for them, it's a 6.12 ratio that if you're in the monthly giving program, you're giving more, six times in one year, more than the single gift donors. Wow. Now, this obviously varies a little if you've got a really aggressive program with Telemark being 
uh, lots of mail and stuff like that, the ratio might not be as great, but it's certainly minimum three to one on average, primarily because you're getting way uh, the retention rate is so much higher. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing, like, you know, once you start extrapolating and focusing on lifetime value, which which I actually think is part of the issue is it's it's surprising how few organizations really focus on something like lifetime value. It's not often on dashboards and metrics, because if it was, then instantly pretty much you go monthly giving <laughs> just because, again, the, the numbers are so clear. But I think a lot of times you go lifetime value and you kind of see some blank looks. And so I think that's actually part of the the challenge is the measuring sticks we're using are, are wrong or not the best ones, right. and that, that sets up the problem. Yeah. I, one of the – like I like numbers and stats and data and all this. But one of the things I think has really hurt nonprofits overall is ROI, return on investment, mm-hmm. because you think we have to get this money back right away, mm-hmm. and it can't test things and fail. It has to, We have to be guaranteed this. And monthly giving is gradual, and you're often – investing $100 to acquire a donor, um, but once they're acquired, they're worth $1,000. But they're not happy that it takes a year to break even or six months to break even. And so by if you're not using the proper metrics for great long-term value, then you're depriving your organization of income and stability. Yeah. So you're dead on on that. Yeah, that's uh, it's unfortunate. Hopefully that, that starts to to change. I'm, I'm somewhat encouraged by some of the, the kind of new blood making their way into fundraising that understand more, more of like the software service space as models, which really revolves uh-huh. around subscription. And so I think that's kind of shaping some of the younger organizations and fundraising organizations that I've seen. Right. So maybe there's some, there's some more uh, other hope there. You know, one thing that you've, you've mentioned a few times is kind of your work in Canada and the U.S. And I know you've done work in Australia and all around the world. But one of the things that I've heard and seen a bit, especially as I've been in the U.S., is that the U.S. seems to be even further behind in kind of monthly giving programs and focus than, say, Canada and the rest of the world. A, is that true in your experience? And kind of B, why is that? Despite my best efforts. Um, <laughs> well, it actually probably is the only area. I mean, although it used to be the only area where the U.S. was behind the rest of the world. Now I think there are actually some other areas where there's like bright spots in a lot of European countries, even some African, Asian countries. Um, but I think uh, there is uh, a banking system issue in the States, that, uh, which is way too complicated to explain. But you couldn't do this up until 1979, I think. And then it was comp- more, way more complicated than in other countries. Therefore, groups didn't embrace it early yeah. on. Um, so I think there was that self-interest, people running telemarketing companies or direct mail companies. Um, and even some in- internal people didn't want to have less money coming into them, which I believe it's totally unethical. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are kind of these self-interest barriers as well as the other things. And um, But I, I have seen a moderate amount of change mm. uh, in that time, not as much as in other countries, because you look at a lot of European countries, right. and files are you know substantially monthly giving a lot of people that's almost only what they ask for. Yeah. So... Um, you know, I'm I'm hopeful that that, and I I think to some it used to be so easy to get new uh, donors in the states because mail was like eight cents a package, so you could do phenomenal volume and and uh, what they should have been doing is converting people right away, but mm. they focused on stuff like that, and um, but you know, there's been examples charity water recently, like only it took them a few years to get onto this, but about mm-hmm. three years ago. 
they realized, hey, wait a second. <laughs> um, and now they're making um, 13 million going from zero. And that's a significant percentage of uh, their $50 million and will only grow because when they see this is, you know, this is great, they start uh, testing around it. They start uh, using all the different channels they're using to talk about this when their founders out in public meetings. That's what they're pushing. Um, so, you know, hopefully uh, it will change. Yeah. yeah. And again, that, that's a good example of kind of a younger, even though they're, you know, 10 years plus now, but a younger organization. And we yeah. actually had their demand generation person at our conference speaking just on that of kind of how they kind of backed their way into figuring out how valuable recurring giving was. And then because they invested so much in their brand and kind of a following kind of first, and this wasn't necessarily intentionally, when they came time to say, hey, you know what, maybe you should join this monthly giving program. They had so much trust and equity built up that it was much easier for them, right? I mean, that, yeah. that's the other irony is that organizations that are kind of smaller and need the donors but don't have brand, it's more expensive for you. It costs more for you to, to acquire donors because people don't know who you are. And so, it, you know, it kind of was unintentionally strategic, I think, on Charity Water's part to kind of have that brand equity and now take advantage of recurring. It's kind of interesting to, to see that. Um, well, hopefully the, hopefully the U.S. continues to, uh, to kind of catch up uh, to the to the rest of the world. Unless it's an NRA, we don't want them to catch up. <laughs> well, now that's a different behind. topic. <laughs> um, I couldn't stop myself. No, it's fine. Go for it. It's I love uh, I love how passionate you are about the causes you believe in. And I actually didn't even know how much advocacy advocacy work you have done in your career until I started actually researching for this podcast. It's it's amazing. Oh. Um, so uh, before we jump on to kind of generosity more generally, just if someone's listening today and doesn't have a monthly giving program or that's kind of fledgling or they're kind of considering, like, what's maybe one piece of advice for them to kind of get started or kickstart their program? Well, um, I, w- I guess the thing I would say is get my book, Hidden Gold, from our website. You can download <laughs> it. And I actually get paid some money for it. But ah, I, give all the royalties, <laughs> I give all the royalties from all my books two charitable organizations so that then I feel like I can come promote them because I want to spread ideas, but it's not a self-interest thing. So um, one monthly donor should be worth a thousand to two thousand dollars. The book's twenty nine bucks. Uh, there's a bunch of examples and I'm sure things people could steal. Uh, and even though it was written a number of years ago, everything in there uh, as a technique and a tactic and a strategy, uh, it does not matter that our world is now very digital because you can apply all these principles. Right. You just use it's exactly the same. Hmm. Um, you you just drop these into the you know whether it's Twitter or Facebook or whatever, mm-hmm. and so um, so that's I'd say a really good thing for people to do. Now, if you don't want to do this and you just want to do it on your own, what I have done with everything, I've got thirty thousand direct mail samples and bazillions of digital samples because. Uh, when you're looking at what other people are doing, if they keep doing it over and over again, there's a pretty good chance that they're a large organization. They've tested this and you can understand work, what mm. works emotionally for you. Uh, that's a clean reply form or that's a great, that page. It's totally functional. Get our people to adapt that so we can do something like that on our website. Cause currently it's really clunky and it's hard for people to make that decision to become a monthly donor. Mm-hmm. So I think those are kind of, it's, you know, you learn, you have to learn more. Go to, when people are talking about this, go see them. Uh, and again, for organizations that have uh, very few monthly donors or next to none, just ask your donors. If you've had a file, say 10,000 people, 
and you've never asked them for a monthly gift, there's hundreds of them uh, who will do it. And there's thousands of them who are on other people's monthly giving programs because mm-hmm. there's, hun- you know, I don't know, the, nobody knows the exact number, but there's certainly a hundred million people on somebody's monthly giving program, and I'm on seven. <laughs> and Rosemary Oliver at Amnesty International is on about 15. So there is some overlap, but there's certainly millions of people who do this, are quite familiar with it, and like it because it's convenient. Yeah. Awesome. Great advice. So, uh, but before I let you go, uh, this is the Generosity Freak Show, and we are talking about how to grow and optimize generosity. So I'd love to hear how you personally would define uh, generosity kind of in your work or in your own life. And then um, maybe a couple ideas or one idea on how you think we uh, can kind of grow, optimize, and improve generosity. Well, uh, great and complicated question. Um, <laughs> I wrote a book with a friend, Azim Jamal, about a decade ago called The Power of Giving, How Giving Back Enriches Us All. And that's all about giving in all its forms and being generous and being kind. So it's not just about giving money. It's about um, you know trying to live your life uh, in, a, in a kind way. And all of the social science research shows that there are huge benefits to the individual when they do this, especially when you're not expecting anything. Hmm. But actually, as it turns out, it's a good thing for people to do for themselves when they're doing good for others. And Azim has a story of a friend of his who was totally depressed and sick and in a hospital and uh, bemoaning his own fate. And somebody else was even in a worse situation, so he started helping her. And, he, and they became good friends. And he realized through doing this that his depression went away. So there's Stephen Post wrote a great book on why good things happen to good people mm. with over 100 peer review studies as to why when you're doing kind and generous things, uh, you're happier. When students um, volunteer in high school, it is actually an inoculation about against committing suicide. Mm. The suicide rates among teens drop a lot when they start doing something for other people. So we all the research is there. So I think partly when people hear this, uh, they know it's a good thing to do. And in addition to that, it just feels good. You get chemicals in your brain that make you feel good when you do good things for other people. Hmm. So I'm a big proponent of it. And it doesn't mean necessarily you have to give money. It could be you're mentoring a child or you're helping a kid with a learning disability or bringing soup to your sick neighbor. These things all build community. Uh, they're important for individuals. We're all connected. The more connected we are, the fewer problems we have in our community. So... I think there's, um, you know, encouraging people to go volunteer for causes that touch their heart. Great thing. I know people have met their life partner at these things, hmm. uh, at volunteer meetings. So, you know, I could go on about this one for a long time. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure you could, but I think that's, that's great. And it's just a good reminder too. I think sometimes those of us that are in the, the space, we can get pretty, you know, in the weeds about, you know, ROIs and net returns and <laughs> things like this without knowing. Like this morning, the the person before me in the Tim Hortons line bought my coffee and I had no idea, you know, right. who they were, right? And you're like, oh, like that's so great. Now I got to buy the coffee for someone behind me. And like just those those small acts can really add up and, and you know, form yeah. these habits too. So it's good to have those reminders. And, and that story about, um, you know, like preventing suicide through volunteers, and that's powerful stuff too. That's great. Yeah. Um, well, I'm sure uh, I could take the rest of your afternoon talking about this stuff, but I won't because I know you've got a lot to do. So thank you so much for for taking some time and chatting with us. Um, wh- where's the best place for people to learn a little bit more about you or pick up some of those uh, many books and resources that you mentioned? Right. 
Uh, well, our website is harveymckinnon.com, and McKinnon is M-C-K-I-N-N-O-N. So that's probably the best place. And, um, yeah, that's that's the one shop. That's it. And we'll be sure get to get uh... <laughs> no, You can Google me, and I've, you know, I've got different articles <laughs> online that people can have uh, for free obviously so. I want to uh, I want to get to the point in my career Harvey when I can just say just google me and uh, and you'll find it <laughs> that's a that's a life goal that's great <laughs> we'll be uh, we'll be sure to send out the, the link to to that and the book in particular in the, in the show notes and as we promote it because it is a, such a valuable resource so thank you again for coming on the show and uh, please 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 keep up your excellent work thanks Brady I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Harvey, and I hope someday I will be able to say to someone, just Google me and uh, you can find all my stuff. (laughs) That's pretty awesome. Um, I'm not sure what else we actually need to cover other than uh, go out and grab Harvey's book, Hidden Golds. Uh, I mentioned briefly in the conversation some of our research and kind of some of our statistics. Uh, We did a research project with salesforce.org, and uh, we looked at uh, recurring giving for 115 different nonprofits in the United States and uh, made three different donations, and we tracked the communication experience, both becoming a donor and then for three months after we became a donor for all three different types of donors, a one-time, a recurring, and a one-time donor who became a recurring donor. And then we categorized it and uh, classified the different communication points and scored it and analyzed it and produced this one big study. And you can get all that study for free and all of that research at recurringgiving.com. Uh, recurringgiving.com. And then there's even a feature there where you can benchmark yourself. So if you go and make a couple donations to your own organization, hop online, fill out some forms, yes, no, yes, no. And we'll actually show you how you did, how you scored compared to the organizations in our study. And you can see where there might be some opportunities to improve and maybe where you're doing really well, which isn't to say you figured it out, but just that you're doing really well. (laughs) So uh, if you're looking for more resources on recurring giving, again, uh, uh, check out recurringgiving.com. We're writing a lot about recurring giving right now. And also be sure to follow Harvey and check out some of his amazing research and resources, harveymckinnon.com. And uh, you can just search for his book, Hidden Gold. So that's it for today's episode on monthly and recurring giving. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Please be sure to subscribe and follow along, and we will see you next week. Thank you. Hey, this is Brady, and I just want to say thank you for listening to the Generosity Freak Show. If you want to get all future episodes, please be sure to subscribe at generosityfreakshow.com, or you can just search the Generosity Freak Show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have comments, questions, feedback, you can email us at podcast at next after. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the Generosity Freak Show is produced by Next After, where I work. Next After is an online fundraising research lab that works with nonprofits to help them grow their online fundraising. And our mission is to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world. You can learn more about us and what we're up to and see our latest research at nextafter.com. Lastly, this show would not be possible without my co-host, Tim Kuchuriak, and our amazing mixologist and producer, Nathan Hill. So many, many thanks to them. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week. 